The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to two hours of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. This is Cooking and Entertaining from a Chef's Point of View. Good morning, food lovers, and welcome to another delicious Sunday in Southern California. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio as the delicious conversation begins this morning. A very happy Labor Day weekend to you. Fire up the grill and let's get cooking. We have new ideas, quick tips, and easy recipes right here, right now for the next two hours. So don't touch your dial. Pour yourself another good cup of coffee and sit down at the kitchen table and join us because we do have a full plate this morning. Good morning to you, Lana. Good morning. And I hear that you had some good food last night. Yes, that I did. I'm still reeling from what was a very delicious evening at Taste, the LA Times event at Paramount Studios, had a blast uh, eating with Roy Choi and having some pinches tacos and Gela Gates's incredible mole. And, oh, we had a bacon grilled cheese off the pig's feet under truck, which was pretty delicious. There are still festivities going on today and tomorrow. You can go to the LA Times website. And coming up, in fact, you're going to hear from Noelle Carter. She is the head of the test kitchen for the Los Angeles Times, and she's going to dish on the rest of the weekend's festivities and give you the lowdown on what makes the ultimate sandwich. Also coming up in just a little bit, we're going to bake with Abby. It's our monthly feature on how you can become a better baker and sweets maker, and we're going to celebrate back to school. She has this peanut butter cookie, mom, mm. that is just crazy good. And by the way, we're making you hungry for more. We always serve up seconds at chefjamie.com and you can actually read along as we bake with Abby and share delicious recipes every Sunday morning. Everything posted on the website again at chefjamie.com. Also coming up next hour, we're going to begin to plan our Rosh Hashanah menu, the Jewish New Year, which starts on the 16th of September. Michael Wexler of Meza Restaurant is going to join us and the great Michael Ruhlman, who everyone knows and loves for his passion for food, has released a new cookbook with great response. It's called Salumi, and it's a follow-up to his charcuterie cookbook, and he shared an exclusive recipe on the website as well, chefjamie.com, to make your own salami at home. If you really want to be a culinary adventurer, it is a simple practice, but it is truly brilliant, and we're going to share all of the tricks of his trade coming up. If you have a cooking question, you're welcome to join in. You'll find me on Facebook at chefjamie.com because we believe the culinary landscape is ever evolving. You're going to hear from chefs and pastry aficionados and restaurateurs and molecular gastronomists and food bloggers and the biggest food network chefs as well right here in your radio. So please continue to tune in and call in 888-KFWB-980 if you like. We're going to kick off this hour with our technique of the week. It's meant to be a little something that can change your life in the kitchen, big time. There are not so secret secrets that we've found very helpful in our cooking, and you'll find the technique of the week posted on the site in a rotating feature. This week's technique of the week is the blissfully simple dessert 
called a clafuti. Now, I remember growing up, Mom, and you always made clafuti, mm-hmm. and it was this very French word and this very elegant dessert that people expected, and often it was, in the traditional manner, fresh cherries baked in custard with slivered almonds and a splash of amaretto, and then it was lightly dusted with powdered sugar, and I can't imagine mm. how that could have ever been bad. There's <laughs> nothing bad about it. It's a humble French concoction. That's sort of like a Dutch baby or it German is. pancakes. And you can use just about any fruit. The brilliance of what we believe are the best techniques in the kitchen is to know how to master something simply and then be able to mix it up with your own signature flavor, Mm -hmm. the inspiration from the farmer's market or what you have in your fruit bowl on the counter. So whether it's peaches or plums, Melissa's peaches right now, beautifully sweet. Uh, Apricots could be blueberries during the fall and the winter. In fact, the apple uh, heirloom assortment is starting to come uh, into play. An apple kaflutti is one of my favorites. Sliced mm. thinly, just beautiful. Well, if you have three cups of fruit and some kitchen basics, yes, then you have an instant dessert. You do. And I like mm. to call it a dinner party dessert, but you could have your own dinner party, just you, or you and a friend, or you and a spouse, or mm. you and your dog. It's easy and yet so quite, <laughs> quite impressive. It really is. So here's what is really the basics Uh, or what are the basics, rather, of clafuti. The name sounds fancy. The finished dessert is gorgeous. It's a sight to behold, and it's super simple. What you do is literally arrange fruit on the bottom of a baking dish, or you could do it between the layers of batter, if you like. Which way do you like, Anna? Um, I like to put it in the dish. I like to put the fruit in the dish, Mm -hmm. too. And then it's a flan-style batter, essentially. It's very little flour. Just right in your blender. That's what I love about it. Okay, so if you know me, then you know that I bow to the blender. Now, maybe it's my culinary education or the fact that I worked in professional kitchens that utilized the blender a lot, but I believe it's a great tool for home cooks and it's not used enough. Mm -hmm. Your blender is for more than your morning protein drink. It makes an emulsified dressing that seldom breaks, especially with a little bit of a uh, Dijon mustard added in because it emulsifies beautifully. It makes great, smooth, beautiful pancake batter. It makes crepe batter. It does everything, the blender. I love it. And so it makes clafuti batter too, which makes me very, very happy. You can add toasted nuts, by the way, to your clafuti, like almonds or hazelnuts. And then you can always garnish with uh, a big dollop of creme fraiche when you serve it or whipped cream but the recipe is super simple it's just six ingredients plus salt and pepper right and all you need is a pretty casserole dish Mm -hmm. or a shallow baking dish and you're ready to bake Mm -hmm. i call it simple bliss so our best clafuti batter posted at chefjamie.com and i'll put a link on my facebook page at chef jamie gwen Mm -hmm. is a half a cup of granulated sugar three quarters of a cup of whole milk a quarter cup of heavy whipping cream for a little indulgence a few eggs, a teaspoon or so of pure vanilla paste. We love the Hey Lala. That, I could mm-hmm. bathe in that or stuff. extract. Right. You could use pure vanilla extract if you have it. Or even a drop or two of almond extract mm. if you wanted to add additional flavor. Mm-hmm. little goes a long way on the almond. Pinch of salt because all sweet needs mm-hmm. salt. And then two-thirds of a cup of all-purpose flour. It's a dump recipe. You put it all mm-hmm. into the blender and you blend it for a minute mm-hmm. on high and you scrape down the sides once and voila, 
you're done. Mm -hmm. You pour the batter over the fruit in the baking pan. Well, I would butter the dish and you could dust it with a little flour, your baking dish. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. And then pour the batter in over the fruit or arrange the fruit as you like. Pitted cherries, sliced peaches, apricots. What do you Mm -hmm. have in your in your produce drawer well you too can make a clafouti and you can mix it with dried fruit or even use some frozen fruit if you must sure now i happen to think that the best clafouti is made with either fresh fruit or thawed frozen Mm -hmm. fruit if you put it frozen fruit into the pan the batter doesn't bake when we tested it i didn't think the batter baked as well or as light and airy so if you have frozen fruit take it out now and put it in a strainer and let it thaw and let mm-hmm. the excess water drain out. Mm-hmm. Or I drained a bottle of Amarina cherries. Mm, yes, and you saved the syrup, I hope, and you reduced it down. Yes. And made a great glaze. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. Like okay. a plum cake. Oh, so good. And then all you do is bake it at 350 degrees. It takes 45 to 50 minutes. At this point, you're having salad. You're having uh, the main course. You're pouring more wine. You're uh, giggling with friends. And 45, 50 minutes later, you pull out this beautiful, puffy, fruit-laden dessert. And it is blissfully simple and beautiful. You just learned how to make a clafouti. And it's that easy. So let us know. Send us a photo. We want to know how your clafouti turns out. I want to know how your meatloaf turns out, too. I love this email question that I got. Actually, it was a Facebook message Mm -hmm. from Joseph who sent me a photo um, through through my Facebook page, (laughs) through the website, I think, as well, uh, of this very sad-looking meatloaf. And all it said was help. He needed a meatloaf recipe, I realized. And so, Joseph, we're here to save the day. Wanted to let you know that you can always email your questions as well to jamie at chefjamie.com or lana at chefjamie.com or live at chefjamie.com. But the secret to a great meatloaf is cold liquid because whether you choose chuck or sirloin or a combination I happen to like beef pork and veal in equal parts when I make my meatloaf I like uh, a little bit of finely grated or minced onion I like an egg ketchup a little cumin uh, Worcestershire I like cold milk or cold water because the fat then stays congealed or hard Essentially, when you go to cook the meatloaf, it then melts all throughout and that you get this juicy, mm-hmm. delicious meatloaf. Ice water. Ice water for sure. Mm-hmm. A or lot, A little water from the tap or a bottle and add some ice cubes. Let it sit for a minute or two. Some people use milk and you could ice that down mm-hmm. too. And then the other trick, Joseph, is to let the meatloaf rest just like any meat. You need to let it rest for a good 10 minutes, especially a meatloaf that's been cooking for quite a while, so that the proteins uh, relax again and then all come together and your meatloaf will hold together and you'll be able to slice a big thick slice and serve it over mashed potatoes and as fall comes you can invite me over for dinner because that sounds absolutely delicious and then a a clafouti for dessert a perfect (laughs) i like (laughs) it may i just mention that if no if if someone does not want to use the cream in the clafouti they could use plain yogurt Mm. as well what a nice thought yes i love that 
Okay, what time is dessert? Okay, soon. Okay, I'll be right over. Uh, by the way, the New Mexico Hatch Chili season continues, and Melissa's is roasting Hatch Chilies live at the South Pasadena Bristol Farms store this weekend. But be sure to join us next Sunday. Mark your calendar, Sunday, September 9th. We're broadcasting live for the final day of Hatch Chili Roastings with Melissa's, and breakfast is on us, so please come join us. Mark your calendar. We're broadcasting live at Bristol Farms Newport Beach next Sunday but stay tuned as the delicious conversation continues we're going to continue to sweeten it up we'll be right back in your radio We're building your kitchen confidence chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio This is your opportunity to bake with Abby our resident pastry chef Every month in your radio, making you a better baker and sweets maker. I love this monthly series, and I love when Abby contributes recipes. You'll find them if you'd like to read along as you learn. It's at chefjamie.com. It's time to go back to school, and so we're going to sweeten up lunch boxes and afternoon snack time, and oh, dessert after dinner too, and maybe a weekend project to cook with your kids. How do peach rosemary mini hand tarts sound? Mm. Sounds pretty good to me. Abby Dodge joins us live. You'll find her blog, and you can bake together with Abby, by the way, at abbydodge.com. Good morning, Abby. Good morning, Jamie. Good Good morning, morning, Lana. We loved your tweet this morning. Thank you. Everyone calls her lovely Lana. (laughs) She is. And then I loved the tweet that followed from a fan of both yours and mine, which I'm most grateful for, who, Lana, recognized Abby's mention of me from Home and Family Days a long time ago. Yes. So that was that was Renee from Kudos Kitchen. You saw that. Yeah. I love that. You know, in 1997, I will never forget the beginning of Home and Family, Christina Ferrari and Chuck Woolery, which led to be Michael Berger. And those were my first days on television, Abby. Awesome. I know. Pretty great. And, you know, um, the dishes have only gotten better. It's really true since then, um, or at least I'd like to say so. And along with your help, we've become better bakers. Talk to us about um, baking and back to school because these become busy times again. They do, and, and it's, but it's a great time. You know, fall and back to school is a great time for, for, for desserts and for tre- after-school treats because the flavors, those fall flavors, get nice and rich and deep, you know, with great ingredients like the double peanut butter sandwich cookies that that are on your site that we posted on your site mm. and those those hand tarts that you were just talking about the dough the batter for the crust is made with brown butter okay i think by the way that everything on the planet should be made with brown butter a couple of years ago we actually forecasted that brown butter was going to be one of the hottest trends it was probably of 2011, and it's continued, Abby, because I think that it makes scallops better. It makes, in the savory style, uh, a quick saute of sole, petrali sole better. And then when you bake, like a pecan pie at the holidays, much better with a brown butter crust. And eggs in the morning. And Yes, and frittata. Mm-hmm. Everything is better with brown butter. I, I think that's the new slogan. Everything is better with brown butter. <laughs> I like it. I'm making a bumper sticker. It's All right, I'm in. Flavor, you know, it's not just the wonderful fat, but it adds that that buttery, nutty flavor to anything, mm-hmm. sweet and savory. So I'm I'm right on board with that. 
Okay, so talk to us about these hand tarts because you can buy these pastry squares or tarts in the frozen foods section, you know, filled with preservatives and fake fruit and all that icky stuff. But why not make it yourself? These hand tarts could be breakfast. They could be dessert for uh, after lunch during the back to school season. They could be dessert for the kids. And I suspect that they freeze well. They do freeze well, and they also reheat in the toaster. Oh, um, perfect. Really, really, it's really fun, and the kids love to do it. You know, you just want to warm them up a little bit. Um, and I agree, these, these peach rosemary mini hand tarts are, are morning, noon, and night. Um, the perfect size for a snack for the kids at school. I have filled this brown butter crust. I call it a one-pot crust. Um, whoever thought you'd be making a pie crust in a pot, um, but we do it with these. And um, I fill them with a peach rosemary filling, mm-hmm. a jam filling, but really, you know, your favorite jam. I made them just last week with a double double apricot pistachio mm. uh, preserve oh. from my friend, friend Kathy Barrow. Uh, what makes, wait, what makes them double apricot? Fresh apricot. And, and dry apricot. I knew she was going that there. Intense apricot flavor. Oh, I love that. Fabulous. I'm looking at the method, and this definitely is a technique as you talk about. Making brown butter is all about letting the butter slowly cook until it's in the French term, uh, the classic term called beurre noisette. And it's called hazelnut, the word noisette, because it becomes that beautiful color, but the aroma that wafts from it, you know when it's ready. And it's, um, I believe leave a trial and test you know the one time you've ever burnt brown butter you'll never do it again (laughs) you know right when to pull the butter sometimes maybe a little easier to pull it off the stove and then you can always put it back on doesn't the fragrance tell you yes I believe the aroma Mm -hmm. tells you do you believe so Abby yes it's definitely one of those you know we're always talking about sensory clues for doneness tests. Yes. Making brown butter is the perfect example because you're looking at it and you're looking for those hazelnut color specks mm. of the butter solids that have browned and you're smelling it and it smells, I mean, the nutty aroma mm. is beyond. Mm. Is so good. Beyond. And I love reading through how to make the dough because this reminds me of pat As Abby mentioned, this is a stovetop dough, essentially, mm-hmm. made in a pot. And then you cool it uh, and refrigerate it so that the dough sets. Then you roll it out, fill it, use a little bit of egg wash to seal your squares, right? Yeah. And then you bake them. They take 20 minutes mm. to bake. Would you freeze them fully baked, Abby? or could you freeze them raw and bake them hot and, you know, fresh from the oven as well? Um, you can do either way. Uh, normally, I'm a big fan of freezing, of assembling, even if it's with cookie dough, um, you know, assembling the hand tarts, you know, and then freezing them and then taking them out, you know, out, out of the mm-hmm. freezer and setting mm-hmm. them on your cookie sheet while your oven preheats. And they'll thaw just enough um, so that you can bake them just as you would if you were baking mm. them right away. Mm. I, like I, lo- that. I love the idea, too, that you recommend using a pizza cutter or a fluted pastry wheel for beautiful edges. When we come back, double peanut butter sandwiches a la Abby. You don't want to miss this. It's just getting sweeter. Happy Labor Day weekend. Chef Jamie went along with Lana in your radio, making it more delicious. Don't go away.
Food is life. Create and savor yours. We're back with resident pastry chef Abby Dodge joining us for our monthly series, Baking with Abby. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio. Back to school sweets and treats. These double peanut butter sandwiches, Abby, would be great for a lunchbox. And they're so easy to make. I refer to them as super easy um, and on top of it, the flourless, too, which is always nice, um, you know, to, to send a kid to school with not only something delicious, but especially if, you know, they're swapping things, the kids don't have to worry about if anyone has celiac. I think that's just terrific to consider the gluten-free approach as well and the fact that you could substitute different nut butters, like you could do cashew butter or macadamia nut butter. doesn't just have to be peanut. Exactly. Exactly. Love that. Okay, so simple cookie, five ingredients. Well, five ingredients. I'm counting them as, as <laughs> I'm saying them. Smooth peanut butter. Right. You can use chunky, too, because um, you know how I like people to switch it up as they like to do it. Yes. Um, light brown sugar. If dark brown is all you have, please go ahead and use that. Uh, baking powder, excuse me, baking soda, that's important. A large egg and a little vanilla extract. And so super it simple. Yeah, yeah, it is. It literally. I mean, super simple recipe. Could you make the dough in advance, store it in the fridge, Abby, or freeze it in a log? Um, I, I haven't tried that. Uh, I, I, I'm a little reluctant because of the baking soda in there. Ah. But I, I bet you could. And I, and I personally know that these, the, these cookies freeze really nicely between oh, layers hmm. of waxed paper um, and the nice thing about this recipe is, you know how I like to make small recipes whenever possible. It makes 28 cookies, which makes which would be 14 sandwich cookies. Oh, see, that's perfect. Now, I'm actually going to put a little spin on my question there about making the dough in advance. The brilliance of this dough, as I read through it, is that it doesn't have any resting time, that you can scoop and bake right away. And so why wouldn't you take the opportunity to make a freshly baked cookie if it took you less than five minutes to mix all the ingredients together? And as Abby says, don't overmix. So and there are great results freezing cookie dough. Yes, definitely so. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll test it. But... Um, then you just bake the cookies, uh, what, 15 minutes, and you're done. And then you make this beautiful um, peanut butter mousse almost, and you sandwich the cookies together. I do. It's a confectioner sugar, so it adds a little bit of sweetness to mm. a savory peanut butter Yummy. and mm-hmm. a little more butter. So it's, it, it, it's almost like a peanut butter buttercream frosting. Okay, bring it on. Right, I'm, and again, you can use smooth or chunky. Um, the chunky's kind of nice if you mm. want to add a little bit of texture. Love chunky. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it's, it's real. Or you could even add some chopped up chocolate in there. Oh, chocolate and peanut butter. Okay, now you're talking. Yes. <laughs> yeah, now I'm in. Now I'd like to go back to school, and I would like for you to pack my lunchbox, please. <laughs> that would be great. Okay, so we've covered back to school. You'll find these sweets and treats from Bake with Abby or Abby Dodge on the website at chefjamie.com. And you can always bake together with Abby at abbydodge.com. Oh. It's Labor Day weekend, though, yes. so we, we need to cover some sweets for a long weekend. And Abby, we made your emergency chocolate cupcakes. Oh. It was an emergency, it Abby. Was. We needed them <laughs> right away. <laughs> needed chocolate now. This is a genius recipe. So let's say you're going to somebody's barbecue today, right? Or you need a project with your kids to fill the afternoon. Or you're just 
craving chocolate. If you want to be what I call a culinary hero, you will make these emergency chocolate cupcakes. And you know what I love about them, Abby? You what? use the blender. Yeah, bow to the blender, Jamie. Bow to the blender, baby. <laughs> okay, talk us through it, because it might just be an emergency, you know, come 10 a.m. again this morning. I was just going to say, I think it's always an emergency when you can make cupcakes this quickly. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's just, you just, it's a combination of flour, uh, cocoa powder, granulated sugar, baking soda, and salt. Whisk that or blend that together, and then you've got some hot tap water, vegetable oil, vanilla extract, and an egg. Oh, it's so easy exactly. to put it all it, in the and blender. And honestly, it whips up in, in the time it takes to preheat the oven. And it's ingredients that we all have, no, nothing fancy. Now, you know, if you don't have a blender, number one, you probably should have a blender, um, but if you don't, you can whisk up these things in a bowl, too, with a whisk and a bowl. So it's, there's no excuse to not make emergency chocolate cupcakes. And then there's no excuse not to frost them because you make <laughs> marshmallow frosting. And I love that on your website you make um, zero excuses for the word fluff. It, it is what it is. Look, you know what? It comes in a jar. It tastes rather good. It's pliable, and it... It really suits its purpose oftentimes. It's marshmallow. And I, you know, I like to say, I mean, we're not serving the fluff for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm -hmm. And I like to refer to things like fluff as a culinary mud puddle. (laughs) Um, Young, uh, you know, kids of all ages, young and not so young, should step in a culinary mud puddle once in a while. Thank you. I agree entirely. Very simple marshmallow buttercream frosting is made with unsalted butter and marshmallow fluff and then confectioners or powdered sugar, right? A little vanilla extract. And it's all beaten together until you get this fluffy, pillowy, marshmallowy goodness. And then you just simply pipe or spread and you have an emergency chocolate cupcake with marshmallow buttercream frosting Mm -hmm. a la frosting rather a la Abby. Mm. And it might just save the day. I made a ganache and just dipped each uh, cupcake in the ganache. It was really nice, Abby. Simple. Mm, She made chocolate and cream. And you know what I like to add is a little bit of espresso powder because I love coffee and chocolate together. Great reminder. To the ganache. And you know something? The peanut butter filling that we were just talking about, (gasps) the double peanut butter sandwiches, would make a killer frosting with those chocolate (gasps) cupcakes. Oh, super delicious. A little mix and match. Yeah, no doubt. Could you fill the cupcakes too? We see oftentimes a cupcake filled on the inside. Is it the simple task? I've taken a pastry bag with a tip and stuck it right in there and squirted. And injected it. Injected the cupcake. Or just roll a bowl and just put it, press it into the cupcake. Oh, of the ganache. Batter. You could do that too. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking post-baked Oh, I'm thinking pre of the peanut butter dough. It's funny, Lana. I was thinking post-bake, too. Mm -hmm. And, yes, Jamie, you could just, you know, just inject it in there. If you want something that's a little more pristine, you could cut a little top out, you know, with a melon baller and, you know, scoop out a little bit of the inside and then fill it and top it with the top part of the cupcake so that, and then dip, you know, cover it with some ganache. Yeah, and for those that love Elvis, if you filled them, the chocolate cupcakes, emergency cupcakes for that matter, filled them with the peanut butter mousse and topped them with the marshmallow 
buttercream <laughs> frosting. All you need is a banana and you're in hog heaven. Oh my gosh. Over the top. Good. Okay. I have to tell you, I know exactly what I'm doing at 10.02 this morning. <laughs> Abby, we're very excited for the Just Days Away release of your newest cookbook. Mini treats and handheld sweets will be releasing from Abby Johnson Dodge in just a few days. And these are desserts that you can pick up and eat. We know you're coming back on the show in just a couple of weeks to share, mm -hmm. but just give us a, a sneak peek. We want to be the first to know. Well, you guys are the first to know. We're the you guys are the first ones. We're talking about it for the very first time. Um, it's a really fun book. It's, it's, uh, there are 100 recipes, everything from macarons to pavlovas to all of these things, and it's all in uh, you know, a bite-sized treat. Oh, I love uh, And recipes range from, you know, oh, from speaking of emergency recipes, um, I did a vanilla cupcake recipe that I call the almost instant vanilla cupcake, and it's the sister to the emergency cupcakes that Ev we were just talking about. Every cupcake needs a sister, <laughs> let me tell you. Well, we think that you are quite remarkable, and there is already buzz about the new book, which is remarkable in and of itself. It's everything you need. Abby's giving it to us right in the palm of your hand. We cannot wait to dish on mini treats and handheld sweets. I believe you can pre-order a copy or at least start looking for it now on Amazon.com. Bake with Abby at AbbyDodge.com and find the back-to-school sweets and treats that we discussed at chefjamie.com. Abby, it's always a pleasure, and we'll talk to you soon. We wish you a sweet Have Labor a Day weekend. wonderful weekend. Yes. Thanks. You too, ladies. Always fun to, to chat with you. Thank you. Always fun to have you. Thank As you. the delicious conversation continues, stay tuned. Right after this, Noelle Carter, head of the L.A. Times Test Kitchen. You might just learn something. Chef Jamie went along with Lana. Be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio, Food is Life, Create and Savor Yours. We know you do by reading the Los Angeles Times. If you didn't know, the LA Times is the largest metropolitan daily newspaper in the country. You are one of their daily readership of 1.6 million, and we know that you're reading the food column because you're passionate foodies. We do have great culinary thinkers on this show, and Noelle Carter has managed the LA Times Test Kitchen for many years now. She oversees the testing of all the recipes. She writes in their Daily Dish blog and for the Culinary SOS column. We love watching her on KTLA, where I love to be, too. And we're delighted that she joins us for the first time to share her passion for food right here in your radio in the midst of the L.A. Times taste event going on right now. We're going to dish all about it with Noelle Carter as she joins us. Hey, Noelle, glad to have you. Welcome. It's so great to be here. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Thank you. Good morning. You know, we read your columns online and in print to be educated, to become more fabulous foodies, more dedicated cooks. That's why every Sunday, for the same reason that you write and blog, um, we dish and converse on the radio. It's so wonderful to me that really what you do to share your passion is a learning experience for you every day. That's the true form of education. It's, it is really fun. It's, you, there's so much to the world of food. And you take an ingredient, you know, like say even garlic, and we may cook with it in one way. You know, we may be used to cooking with it, with it one way in the kitchen. And then 
you talk to a chef from somewhere else and they use it in a completely different way. And it's, it's so fascinating. There's always so much more to learn. Okay, wait, Noelle, are you holding back? Because you mentioned garlic and a chef abroad, which means you have something up your sleeve because maybe you're not roasting it or cooking it confit. What have you done with it lately? Well, you know, it, not necessarily garlic, but we have done a few recipes recently um, that uh, are, are, you know, completely uh, playing with ingredients that I've never tried before. Oh, like them, what? Uh, salt koji. It was just in the LA Times paper, and it's this new phenomenon in Japan, and we're seeing it here in California, too, where they take a fermented rice, and it has this umami essence. And this fermented rice can be added as a flavoring to a variety of different dishes. And it's something I'd never heard of this before. And then not only did we learn how to use this ingredient in uh, at least a couple of different recipes, but we also learned how to make our own salt koji. And it's just fascinating. Is it salt koji you're saying? Salt koji. It's this rice that's inoculated with, uh, forgive my ignorance, some sort of bacteria or a fungus. And you add rice to it, you add some liquid, and then you basically just let it ferment over several days. It's interesting. I just did a search on the internet, and your piece comes up first, and then there's all these wonderful, in fact, uh, postings in different languages that mention that this is such a treat. It's a fascinating ingredient. Yes, Chinese fermented rice. There are those that make it in the Thai fashion um, in all the Asian cultures. Oh, I can't wait to try it. It's it's really fun. Really Lana, fun. this is our food project for the afternoon. Wonderful. <laughs> she can't wait for a new science experiment Great. as we test as well. Uh, does the LA Times Test Kitchen under your reign have particular favorite ingredients? What kind of salt do you use? Do you like a tangy, pungent olive oil? And so I wonder what your staple go-to ingredients are. You know, one of, one ingredient that I've been playing with not so much in the test kitchen, but at home, is goat butter. Goat butter. Goat butter. You can find it in some gourmet stores and uh, cooking supply stores. Right. We buy it at Bristol Farms, a variety of butters from different animals and from around the world. It's brilliant. I love the tang that it gives Mm, to a dish. Yes. You know, not necessarily, I don't really use it for cooking, but like as a finishing or, you know, to spread on on some homemade bread. Uh, It's just, it's simple. But that tang just really opens up all of the flavors. It takes anything to a whole new level. I agree with you, and I love the one-ingredient inspiration. We're talking about the tart flavor of goat butter and beautiful spread just on a lightly toasted piece of freshly cut French bread with a couple of slices of fresh fig as we enter into fall. Yes. Okay, we can have breakfast together, you and I. Sounds good. I like that. It's not too late this morning, in fact, to plan your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There is really an incredible celebration going on this weekend that you should plan lunch and dinner at today. If you missed yesterday, you'll make it up today and tomorrow. The Los Angeles Times, the taste event, the annual celebration of the Southern California culinary scene is going on at Paramount Studios today and tomorrow. And we're looking forward to seeing you tomorrow, Noel. Okay, so tell us a little bit about uh, today's and tomorrow's festivities. Well, today we've got uh, Jonathan Gold doing Flavors of L.A., and uh, it's just going to be kind of combining all of, the, all of the great cuisines and all of the great flavors that you find in Los Angeles because it's mm. such a melting pot of just everything. So we're going to explore that this morning. And then uh, at night, we've got a dinner and drink thing going on at Paramount. We're going to have mixology demonstrations and a beer cocktail demonstration. It should be really, really fun. Yeah, I'm in because it says cocktails in the first line. I know. It doesn't get any better than that. Bring it on, right? And then tomorrow... Tomorrow, we've got our Labor Day picnic. 
And this is open actually to the whole family. I think kids 12 and under are free. And we're going to have a firehouse cook-off. Steve Lopez is doing a firehouse cook-off. We've got cooking demonstrations by uh, Judy Hahn, Nancy Silverton, and Zoe Nathan, who is co-hosting the Labor Day picnic with me. I'm going to be talking uh, with the winners from our burger battle this year, and we're going to talk about what goes into making a great burger. Hmm. And then we're just going to hang out and talk about great sandwiches. I think we're going to have an ice cream social. It's just going to be fun for the whole family. Okay, ice cream social. Lana's in. Now you got the both of us. <laughs> great. I know it's a celebration of the sandwich tomorrow, why we chose the Labor Day picnic to attend as well. You are a sandwich lover, as I are we. Sandwiches. It's everything I love all composed in one with a top and a bottom. Right, and it's easy. You know, it's, it's great food on the go, but... Uh, yeah, you've got it's all the components of a great meal wrapped in conveniently wrapped in a, in a nice package. Yeah, so inspire us whether it be for uh, the end of summer or Labor Day or even as we come into fall. What is your uh, current best sandwich combo? Oh gosh, well I I recently did a sandwich demonstration on NBC where I did a, a pan fried cod with a homemade radicchio slaw, and you can find the recipe on Daily mm. Dish. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think it's perfect for fall. Two slices of pumpernickel bread, some great mustard, creamy horseradish, a homemade radicchio slaw, and then just pan fried cod. And that's it. And it's, it's mm. fun and relatively easy to do and uh, perfect for company. It sounds delicious. I love the richness of the cod offset by the, the bite, the pungency of radicchio, one of yeah. the um, bitier, sometimes pepperier, like in the arugula family, uh, of the choices of greens or lettuces. Right. And what a really nice contrast. And great colors, too. Oh, definitely. As we come into fall, too, all those rich purples, and I love to offset the cream. I found a recipe on your daily dish, which is the inside scoop of food in Los Angeles, and you can find Noelle Carter's column on latimes.com. I was so excited, Noelle, to find it. I jumped up and down because you and I share a passion for white gazpacho. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my, the, okay. Now, I have to tell you, I learned to make white gazpacho in Spain. And then I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to share my white gazpacho recipe at a food event at the Arizona Biltmore. I was teaching classes. And so when I found your recipe, I thought, oh, I have to read this. I'm just going to, you know, have to compare and make my recipe better. And I love your influence of yogurt or sour cream. Thank you. Well, you know, the, the recipe is actually, it was originally a reader request. We have our culinary SOS column. And a reader requested this uh, gazpacho from the Sweet Life Cafe uh, on Martha's Vineyard. And we got the recipe. And it just looked so refreshing. Talk about a great dish for the dog days of summer. It's mm -hmm. cucumbers, green grapes, garlic, of course. We've got some Greek-style yogurt, a little sour cream. Just nice and bright and flavorful and refreshing and so easy to make. Yeah, and I think it's just a wonderful cold soup, like a, a breath of chill in a bowl. Definitely. And I, too, use grapes. I float them. And I thought with these dog days of summer, as you said, it was just perfectly apropos. So thank you for sharing your passion and spreading the word about thank white you. gazpacho. We should get together uh, for cold soup sometime soon. But we will for sure see you tomorrow. And you, too, can experience what is an incredible gastronomic adventure here in Southern California today and tomorrow, the taste Los Angeles Times annual celebration of great culinary 
delicacies and truly what is most delicious about Southern California continues at Paramount Studios. You can grab tickets at latimes.com forward slash the taste or go straight there and buy tickets at the door in Hollywood. We will see you today and tomorrow. You'll meet uh, Noel Carter and continue to grow your culinary education. And we thank you for growing ours, Noel. And we look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you so much. As the delicious conversation continues, don't touch your dial. There's more after this. A very delicious Labor Day weekend to you. This is Delicious Conversation in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana every Sunday morning and serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. This is cooking and entertaining from a chef's point of view where the most passionate food and wine lovers live. Stay tuned, coming up in just a little bit, the one we all love, food blogger and, uh, of course, the much-loved food enthusiast Michael Ruhlman is joining us. He is going to share his newest cookbook recently released, creating copa and salami and pancetta at home from his new book called Salumi. But first, we're going to start by planning your Rosh Hashanah menu this morning. I got a chance to catch up with chef and owner of Meza restaurant, Micah Wexler. Take a listen. Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish holiday, begins Sunday, September 16th this year, an occasion of great joy and feasting as what we call the Jewish New Year begins. It's a time of introspection and when we commit ourselves to a better life. It's also a time of great food and plenty of good eating. And we're here to share the best of Rosh Hashanah menu planning with you. There might be no better gentleman and chef in the Southern California area highlighting some of his family's best Jewish recipes on his menu at Met. He calls it. For just more than a year, the restaurant has been situated on North La Cienega Boulevard in West Hollywood. And the executive chef and partner is Micah Wexler. He has an incredible talent for food that comes alive with flavor. And I love the small plates menu because it means you get a taste of a little of everything. He has an impressive background as well. He's worked in Michelin three-star restaurants around the world. And he is delighted to be at the helm of his own restaurant now, having received stars from Irene Verbilla of the LA Times and Angelino Magazine. We're delighted that you're here. Uh, Pre-Rosh Hashanah, Chef, welcome. Thank you, guys. Yeah, definitely so. Okay, Micah, tell us about what Rosh Hashanah is like in your family before we get to the gist of the restaurant. First of all, I think with me, a lot of people ask me all the time, you know, why did you become a chef? What is, what, what is that about? How did you get there? And when I really start to think about it, it always goes back to the big Jewish holidays, yes. to Rosh Hashanah and Pesach and cooking with my mom and my grandmothers. Those are the times when I think that I really got bit with the bug in terms of cooking and providing sustenance for people and watching people enjoy what you got to make and seeing that whole process. So for me, the holidays are always a really special time of year because it reminds me of those beginning days when I was a kid when I first started getting into this. And I think for me, the same, you know, Lana and I are Jewish as well. And we've always celebrated those holidays defined by food. 
And as an American culture, our food defines who and what we are. I mean, interestingly enough, ketchup was the number one condiment however many years ago. Um, Today, it's salsa. I mean, we see the influence here in America. Food is never static. The culture is never static. But keeping the history alive is one thing that you really pride yourself on. Well, I think it's a great time in this country for food, too, because sometimes people talk about an indigenous cuisine, and, and you could argue over a couple of regional cuisines in America, but... I think for the first time in this country, we're really getting a sense of ourselves, what the American cook is, what the American Mm -hmm. kitchen is. And a lot of that has to do with the different backgrounds and cultures that we all came from and doing those in a uniquely American way, which is which is pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool as well. As we embark on the Rosh Hashanah holiday, um, talk to us about spicing it up, because I love that you add a sort of modern twist to a lot of your dishes. One of them on the menu, in fact, which stands out to me, is your grandma's chopped chicken livers. And in fact, we're grateful you shared the recipe. It's at chefjamie.com. Okay, teach us how to make it. Let's start there. It's kind of a funny story about that one, just to give you a little background. It wasn't on... Uh, uh, the original menu when we started. It's something that came along somewhere along the way. And uh, I actually got sent about 10 pounds of chicken livers by my meat company by mistake. And I was going to send them back. And then I'm looking at them and saying, oh, these chicken livers are really nice, super fresh, really bright, just beautiful quality. Let's figure something out. Let's do something. And I was thinking about, you know, making a really nice, refined kind of French pate, really smooth. Um, and then I said, you know what, I'm a little bored of that. Let me, let me do something else. And immediately that, that image of my grandmother using her little handheld grinder in their tiny two-bedroom apartment making chicken livers. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my grandmother's chopped chicken liver. Sort of started as a joke, but it was one of those things that, that caught on right away. And I knew it was something big when I had a bunch of chef friends calling me around the city. Like, we heard you're serving this chopped liver. What, what's the deal with that? Everybody's talking about it. Yeah, you got to come in and check it out. It's my grandmother's recipe. And, you know, I took a, a little bit of liberties here and there, but um, it's, pretty, it's pretty traditional. And we serve it with challah on the side that we make in-house. And we always have a different kind of uh, mustarda with it as well, or a mustard fruit. Right now, it's being made with grapes, but at different times of the year, mm. sometimes it's plum or apple. Mm. It just kind of depends on, on what's in season. I love that. You know, I grew up on chopped liver, too. And my mom, whom everyone knows is Lana, makes chopped liver... And to me, there's no other way, right? The onions have to be beautifully caramelized and really dark brown. Yes, very yeah, much absolutely. so. Exactly. Yes, and the chicken livers need to be entirely French and mm-hmm. uh, fresh, rather. Yes. And well cleaned. And don't forget the chicken fat. And yeah. don't forget the chicken <laughs> fat. She just yeah. gave away you know, her you greatest secret. You never forget secret. the schmaltz. You know, you gotta, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, the, the first thing you said there, which is really important, I mean, there's before you even start considering a recipe and what you're going to do to the livers, there's two things. They have to be super fresh. They can't be the frozen, you know, been, been sitting in the kosher butcher for the last two years, livers. They've got to be nice and fresh. Um, and you have to go through the cleaning process, which for us here, uh, we soak the livers in ice water for about three days before we actually use them. And we change the water every single day to make sure it's fresh. And that really, the ice actually helps to put some pressure on the livers to push out all the impurities or excess mm. blood or anything like that. And you get, you don't get that, you know, kind of, intense livery mm-hmm. taste when you're done you get this really nice clean taste well there's a juicy there go. tidbit for you i love that how about soaking in milk um yeah soaking in milk definitely works as well um that's something you know like we we do that uh with our sweet bread sometimes that we use for other dishes oh. we'll soak them in milk um yeah so for organ meats milk can be something really good it also helps to to draw out all the impurities oh, yes. i'm gonna add ice cubes to my milk 
Love yeah, it. there, there you go. we go. Ice and milk. Thank now you have you. the best uh, combination. Right? The best of both worlds. Just for some more Jewish inspiration, you should plan your next meal at Meze for the Sunday special. Because did you know that Micah makes mom matzo ball soup pastrami with mustard on rye and potato knishes? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's one of our favorites. Oh, my God. I love it. Can't wait. Um, Sunday's a really good time around the restaurant. You know, it's, uh, we, we weren't open Sundays at first, and we kind of opened up a little bit later. And we wanted to do something special, um, but that's something that was kind of, you know, unique and family style also, not take ourselves too seriously. So we started doing those things in addition to having the regular menu, and uh, they've, they've really taken off. I mean, people love to come in for it, and it's a lot of fun for us, too. I mean, you know, the whole process of baking pastrami is about a nine-day process. So sure. whenever you put that amount of time and love into making some food, you know, it's really rewarding when you're when you're done with it and it turns out exactly how you want it. You are super cool. Save a Kanish for me. Uh, <laughs> Rosh Hashanah actually starts on a Sunday night this year, and there are so many symbolic foods that come into the celebration of Jewish holidays. Honey and apples, two of them that really stand out for me for Rosh Hashanah, and you have some ideas to sort of spice up what we consider uh, the starter, the symbolic starter of the Rosh Hashanah meal. You get kind of people who fall into two camps when it comes to these holidays, right? There's the pure traditionalists that don't want to change anything, and that's that's a totally acceptable thing. I love the traditions, and, and they're always there at my mom's house. And then, you know, there's people who get kind of bored with that. They want to spice it up a little bit. So I think there's there's ways to look at the traditional things and just make some small tweaks and adjustments. And you can have, you know, some, some pretty interesting variations. You know, for example, take something like the apples and honey. You know, it's always cut apple slices and just honey to dip in. I think if we look at that instead as maybe a salad and what can we do with that, you know. So maybe you take a few different kinds of heirloom apples and we shave them really thin on the mandolin and maybe we get some fennel going in there too and some shaved celery and then make a honey vinaigrette. You know, you can add some nuts to that, whatever, some different herbs, and suddenly you have something that has those flavors that, that you're familiar with, that you know, but it's in a totally unique way, a fresh way of presenting nice. it to you. I love that. Make a mm-hmm. honey vinaigrette for us, Chef, would you? Yeah, super simple. Um, you know, to me, vinaigrettes are, are all about balance. Uh, so especially when you have something that's going to be a sweet vinaigrette, you want to make sure you have enough acid to balance it out. And when we're talking acid, we're either talking citrus or vinegar with something like honey. I think that uh, the vinegar is the right way to go with that one. I would use uh, sherry vinegar. It's definitely one of my favorites. Oh, me too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah one of my go-tos for sure. And I think even like a, a warm vinaigrette would be really nice with something like this. It's kind of comforting, um, and it'll just barely wilt the, the shaved apples, which would be kind of nice. So if you start out... You know, you take maybe a shallot, chop it up really fine, uh, just saute it in a little bit of olive oil, add some of the honey and allow it to caramelize, then add, a, a, you know, a tablespoon or two of the, the sherry vinegar. It'll start to bubble up right away, and those shallots will absorb all that vinegar. And then take that right out of the pan, put it into a bowl, whisk in a little bit more olive oil and a little bit more vinegar if you need it to adjust, and you have a really simple honey vinaigrette. Yeah, and then you go to Chef Micah's house for dinner. Let me tell you. You're welcome anytime. Well, thank you. And we hope that you'll stay with us. We'd like to talk to you more. And by the way, you're welcome on this show anytime. We're going to continue our conversation with Chef Micah Wexler of 
Meze. It is on La Cienega in Los Angeles where he creates inventive and delicious new cuisine. We are delighted that just over a year ago he hit the Los Angeles culinary scene and he's inspiring us to plan our Rosh Hashanah menus. More right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana. The delicious conversation continues. Welcome back. This is a place for people who love to eat. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. We're spicing up your traditional holiday meal. Rosh Hashanah begins on the 16th of this month this year. And we're talking about the beauty of the Jewish holidays surrounded by fabulous feasts. He is Chef Micah Wexler at the helm of Meze. Just more than a year now on La Cienega Boulevard in Los Angeles, an incredible dining destination, Los Angeles Magazine's top 10 best new restaurants rated, by the way, a contemporary California take on Mediterranean. And we left off talking about that beautiful idea of incorporating honey into a dressing. And I wanted to mention too, Chef, that, you know, it's not just liquid honey anymore. We have honeycomb, which would make a really beautiful presentation with apples if you wanted just to elevate the simplicity of it. And that you can use honey in so many different ways, like we do in a honey cake as well. And I'm sure you have a signature honey cake that you make. Yeah, you know, I mean, honey is, is without a doubt, one of my favorite ingredients. Mm, and yes. there's, there's really, I mean, you're right about that. I mean, I think people always think of that silly plastic bear with the honey inside, and that's the only kind that there is. But there's so many different kinds of honeys out there now that are... You know, they're, they come from different flowers or herbs that the, that the bees are coming from, and they have different tastes and qualities to them. Some are really nutty, and some are sweeter, and some are really herbaceous, and you can use them all for, for different things. And it's a great, um, you know, sweetener that's just provided by nature there, which is really nice. Yeah, we talk about that a lot here. In mm-hmm. fact, um, backyard honey, you know, finding honey that's uh, artisanally made as close to your home as possible because you yeah. really do benefit from the allergens that come in the honey. And we've talked Absolutely. about locally produced honey. And we're lucky in California, too, because there's so much. Yes, that we are. Eucalyptus, all that good stuff. But along with the or before the honey cake and after the salad, along with the meal, you are known for brisket. And on the menu at Meze. There is a shawarma, a brisket with house pickles, which means right. you know your way to me around a brisket. And I understand that your pomegranate brisket is like the huge hit of the year for Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, the pomegranate brisket is definitely a big hit. People really like that. You know, I grew up eating the, the traditional Ashkenazi-style brisket, which I love. Um, when, you know, when my grandmother still makes it, it's one of my favorite things. That's what my mommy makes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, you know, it's also one of those things that you can get a little bored of, so I wanted to switch it up a little bit, but still keep in with those, you know, traditional flavors, which when I think brisket, you know, it's always a little bit kind of the sweet and sour thing going on. You yeah. get some of these jammy flavors, which is really nice. So. Yeah, like the Italian agrodolce. I love that yeah, word. Absolutely. And I love sweet sour, and I never thought of it that way, but you're right, it is. Yeah, and that's why, you know, for me, pomegranate just kind of jumped right out. You know, it's, it's like the classic Middle Eastern fruit, first of all, and especially for the time of year around the holidays also, you know, is when pomegranates just coming, starting to come into season, you know, sort of late summer, early fall. What we do basically is we take the brisket and marinate it in pomegranate juice and red wine for about two days. Mm, nice. Uh, and then when we go to braise it, we, you know, just mix it along with some aromatics and vegetables, you know, celery, carrot, you know, bay leaf, garlic, that kind of stuff. 
putting it put it in a braising pan. We actually sear it first, then put it in a braising pan, pour that liquid back over it with a little bit of veal stock, and just cook it low and slow till it's really nice and tender. And for the last mm-hmm. maybe I don't know half an hour, 45 minutes, we'll you know we'll have it covered in, in tin foil most of the time, then take that off for the last half an hour or so, mm-hmm. and take those juices and just glaze them over the top of the brisket, so you get this really kind of like sweet bark on the outside of it, which is really, really nice. What and a then, great description. It is. Mm. It's sort of like a good bark kind of crust. Yeah, exactly. And oh, then I what love we do it. just to take it that step further, we, we kind of borrow a, a page from the Italians and we make uh, a gremolata, which is something that you would uh, traditionally serve with ossobuco. And, you know, ossobuco, you think of it as being really heavy braised. Then you have gremolata, which is parsley and garlic and lemon zest, a little bit of olive oil. Um, and so you get this really uh, fresh condiment to go with it. So, you know, you can kind of make it through the whole meal and keep eating and it doesn't weigh you down. So what we do with ours is all those same things I just mentioned, plus uh, fresh pomegranate seeds and pine nuts and a little bit of pomegranate molasses. Mm. And we just put that right over the top of the brisket, and it's really beautiful. Okay, just for the record, I'm starving. (laughs) Truly. You have made us hungry, and we thank you for sharing your passion. The dishes for Rosh Hashanah sound delectable. The dishes every day at Meze are receiving award-winning accolades, and you must plan your next meal, lunch or dinner, at Meze. Micah Wexler, chef and partner, at the stove. Lana, are you starting with warm pita with honey and butter? Yes, I am. And then going to the brisket. And then going to the smoked sturgeon because yes. we didn't even get to smoked fish and Micah's mm. inspiration for the Jewish holiday. But once again, he was generous to share two of his best recipes. If you would like his grandma's chopped chicken livers and Micah's recipe, which he makes every day in the restaurant for the best Jewish egg bread, challah, which that what is what I'm thinking sliced would be a brisket sandwich. Beautiful. Incredible. Uh, And then churros on the menu right now, Chef? We do have churros, yeah. That sounds like sweet and perfect for the Jewish holiday upcoming. I I think it would be perfect, actually. You know, definitely not traditional, but uh, I think it's the the perfect ending. You know, I definitely go with the churros over the uh, dry honey cake. So, (laughs) Okay, I'm in. In fact, mentioning that, I'm going to do a honey gingerbread this year. There you go. That sounds good. Yeah, doesn't it sound better? We're coming to your house then. Okay. And by the way... Micah, too. Yeah, Micah, too. You're the man after my own heart because you said the word churro, just for the record. I'm there. And we can't wait. Uh, You can find, again, Micah Wexler at his restaurant, Meze, and more Rosh Hashanah inspiration with recipes galore at chefjamie.com. We thank him very much, in fact, for joining us, Micah. It was a pleasure, and you can deliver a churro to the radio studio anytime. I'm in. (laughs) It is Labor Day weekend, and we hope you are firing up the grill, grabbing some friends and family, mixing up some pitcher cocktails and being a grill master and so we thought we would inspire you i love your cook with lana this week lana it's a grilled buttered corn on the cob one of my favorite things to grill Mm -hmm. and it's super simple and i like that you shared a method definitely peel back the corn husks but leave them attached to the base and remove the silks and slather each cob with butter it, the butter will keep the kernels moist and season while they cook on the grill. And it's perfect. All mm-hmm. you have to do is literally g- gain the steam from, you know, the 
natural water content of the corn itself and get that good char along with your buttered corn on the cob i'm making barbecue baby back ribs with a house-made orange teriyaki sauce Mm. that by the way roy yamaguchi inspired because the best teriyaki sauce is made in a pot that is continually added to remember that conversation and so you make this sweet sticky delicious teriyaki sauce and when it gets low you start a new batch in the same pot and it sort of compounds and you keep it in the fridge and I think that his father or grandfather whom he learned to cook from had a pot of teriyaki sauce that was going on oh gosh years I believe so uh, consider making your own teriyaki starter I call it like a bread starter exactly (laughs) and uh, rush on over to Bristol Farms where you'll find baby back ribs on special now through Tuesday and you should have a a great grill fest also on the website at chefjamie.com per the request of Ralph and Susan we have posted the coffee chip ice cream recipe you asked for guys and Mm -hmm. we hope you enjoy it it's a simple custard base there's nothing better than the end of summer to savor truly delicious homemade ice cream. And we hope Mm. you find inspiration in our recipe and save a bite, please, for us. (laughs) When we come back, Michael Ruhlman is going to share a sneak preview of his highly anticipated and newly released cookbook called Salumi. If you ever wanted to make salami or copa or even pancetta at home, this is a food artisan's paradise of a cookbook and we're going to teach you how right after this chef jamie went along with lana in your radio there's more delicious conversation so stay tuned Oh, what a coup. He's back. And we are too. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio as the delicious conversation continues. We are great fans of this gentleman who truly does translate the chef's craft for every kitchen. As his tagline says, you've been to Ruhlman.com lately. I guarantee you learned something and you've heard Michael Ruhlman grace this program before. It was originally when he wrote The Making of a Chef, the Culinary Institute of America cookbook book. And then as he co-wrote the French Laundry cookbook and wrote his food column for the Los Angeles Times for over two years, we followed, we listened, and we learned. He came out with a book called Charcuterie, which was really an incredible home cook's lesson in what we all love that comes on that beautiful board when you dine out. And the follow-up to that book, A Love Song to Animal Fat and Salt, as he calls it, has just released. It is called Salumi, the craft of Italian dry curing, and Michael Ruhlman joins us live. Hey, Michael, we're very glad to have you back. Happy to be here, Jamie. Thank you. Welcome. And congratulations once again. Another extraordinary book, which we know you poured your heart and soul into. Tell us about it. <laughs> we were so surprised by the success of charcuterie. Um, you know, who would have thought that in a fat-phobic, salt-phobic country, uh, a book basically devoted to animal fat and salt would do so well and find a home in every chef's kitchen and uh, a restaurant kitchen. And, of course, our financial-minded editor said, guys, you got to do salumi now. This is the next step. This is a great – people are curious. Look how hungry people are for this information. Hmm. You've got to explore salumi. Salumi is basically the Italian version of charcuterie, only it's much more specific. It really is defined by dry-curing meats. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't, they don't do confits, they don't do pâtés and terrines. Uh, they do salami and they do whole mussels that are salted 
and then dry cured over a long time, like prosciutto, uh, like copa, which is the long neck muscle, neck back muscle, and is really well marbled and perfectly suited to dry curing. It's an ancient craft, and it's also one that's accessible to, to just about anyone. And yet it seems so complicated, and people are in sort of... So our, our goal was to demystify this ancient craft of dry curing meat. That's all there is to it. And you've definitely done it. I think it's quite incredible that you have essentially brought what was an old and masterful technique to home kitchens. And not only through teachers like yourself, but through the advent of uh, being able to never leave your home and shop for extraordinary gourmet items around the world from your computer, right? Mm -hmm. The accessibility of all those products. There are now incredible, fabulous foodies that are uh, curing and drying meat in their, um, you know, second kitchen, their garage, their pantry. And it is, like you said, very feasible for home cooks to create salumi at home now and, and use your book as a guide. There are some must-have tools of the trade, and I'd like to start there. What are the minimal necessities to make salumi? Well, I'd like to say on one hand, there really aren't. If you want to make a, a, a dry-cured pancetta, mm-hmm. um, you would simply find a beautiful belly. It's important that you get good product, and it's available to so many people now. You can't, you, you can't walk into a grocery store and get belly at all, let alone a good one. But it's available at farmer's markets. So if you have this and you have salt and some seasonings, that's really all you need to have some incredible pancetta. Um, It it can get more and more complicated. If you want to do salami, well, then you need to have uh, a better dry, a more reliable dry cure area. You You need a certain amount of humidity and you need a certain amount of uh, circulation, and you need a certain temperature, a cooler temperature. How you get these is kind of up to you. I dry cure in our little mini fridge, uh, which was less than $100, and other people can dry in their wine rooms or use their wine uh, their wine storage system sure. for dry curing. But again, our intent was to demystify this stuff. It's really not that complicated. It's, it's a matter of good meat, the proper amount of salt for the proper amount of time, and then allowing it to dry in the right conditions. And then you have some of the most extraordinary food that you've ever had. And the thing that I love about it is that we don't do this because we have some of the most beautiful food on earth uh, to, to enjoy. It's be- we, we did this because it kept us alive. This was, this was a fundamental uh, a form of self-preservation. Right. It wasn't because it was so good. And I, I love that connection to the, the humanity of this cooking process. I do too. I love the idea that you call it self-preservation when in and of itself is a form of preserving. And the fact that it was created uh, to stay alive, essentially, and now we cherish this incredible process of dry curing. Um, you talk about the big eight in the book, prosciutto, salami, copa, lardo, Spala, do you pronounce it? That's correct, spala. Guanciale, lonza, and pancetta. And spala was the only one that I didn't know well. Well, spala means shoulder in Italian. Um, and I, again, as you, you noted at the outset, I try, and, I try and simplify what seems to be complicated ideas. And when we first went to Italy to start researching this book, I was sort of undone and overwhelmed by the variety of salumi available in Italy. They had case after case of different kinds of hams and lardo and pancetta and about a thousand different types of dry-cured sausages or salami 
And I said, God, this can't be this complicated. <laughs> and so I finally, after exploring this, realized, okay, there are about eight products. There are about eight different types of salumi here. So let's break them down into parts. There's the shoulder, there's the belly, there's the back fat, there's the loin, there's the front ham, the back ham, the cheek, and the trim, which is uh, salami, which you grind into sausages. And once we had broken it down into eight basic parts, it was very easy, and everything sort of just opened up, uh, and I understood uh, what salumi was all about. So we try and simplify what seems to be a complicated category or type of cooking. And the pig, is, I think, is just a magical creature. Oh, uh, is it must, ever? It is. It's, you, it's, it's like no other creature on Earth. And it's bounty personified, really, or animalified. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like that word. It gives us so much. It gives us cooking fat. It gives us different parts of the body, um, give us different flavors and different textures. And it's really beautifully suited to dry curing. So we do this in part to honor the pig um, and, mm. and make use of the entire animal. Where we we've become such a wasteful society food-wise. This is, an, an, uh, this is a craft that makes you conscious of waste and and total utilization of of this very precious animal. Michael, through all your research that you did, did you uh, come up with a favorite part of the pig that you love? Yeah, it, you know, it's really the copa. Um, mm. The, the, the copa is a, is a, is a long muscle that normally American, in American style butchery, that's another thing the book does is we, um, we show American style hog butchery and we basically just hack it into rectangles and we show Italian style butchery through step by step illustrations. Italian butchery is designed to make use of all these cuts. So whereas American butchery, we cut right through the copa, this wonderful, well marbled muscle. Um, in salumi, we cut farther down in the animal through the seventh and eighth rib to give us this whole 18-inch long copa. And I love the copa because it's beautifully marbled. It's got almost it's an X in the middle of marbling, and it's just the right amount of marbling. Mm. It's a kind of cut that anybody could dry cure. It's absolutely delicious. It's easy to do, and it's one of the best. So that was sort of the revelation of for me, was, was how amazing this one muscle is, the copa. You've made me extraordinarily hungry, Michael, good. as you always do. Sign. That's a good sign. And we'll be right over for copa. <laughs> Will you please stay with us? Because when we come back, I'd like uh, to talk about curing salts and some of your favorites. And also, we're grateful you provided a recipe from the book that we've posted on the website at chefjamie.com. It has a direct link to ruleman.com where you can find an easy way to order his newest book called The Craft of Italian Dry Curing Salumi by Michael Ruhlman and his co-author Brian Polson. Michael's going to stay with us and you should too. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. As I've said many a time, we have the best culinary thinkers on this show. Michael Ruhlman joins us live. He's talking about his new release, uh, the new cookbook called Salumi. It is taking the food world by storm. And I love in the introduction to the book, Michael, that you wrote about on your website, that you say there's never been a better time in America to be a cook. I truly agree. And if you're a sausage snob, then this book is for you. 
Michael, talk to us a little bit about curing salts because they're really the nature at the heart of this entire process of Italian dry curing, right? In America, they have to be. We yes. have to use a curing salt for dry curing uh, salamis, the, the ground the ground meat, um, in order to protect against the possibility of botulism, um, which is a very potent toxin uh, released by bacteria that can get into a, a sausage. And we do that by using uh, sodium nitrate, which protects the sausage from that kind of contamination. It also is a general antimicrobial agent, and it also protects against rancidity, and it also keeps the color bright and does all kinds of things. Nitrates are in the soil. We eat most of them uh, in vegetables. 95% of the nitrates we ingest, which we need, are in vegetables from the nitrate in the soil. So people think that it's like some sort of bad chemical additive. It's really not, and it does a lot of good things. So I'd like to sort of clear up that misunderstanding and sort of the bad marketing ploys that we've fallen into by selling and 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 buying into the notion of uh, nitrite-free bacon, which is kind of silly. Hmm. So we do need, curing salts are useful and used at the levels in our recipes and, and how we, you know, how they're best used. They're not harmful at all. In fact, there's some evidence that they're even good for you. And where do you source yours? I know you give a source description in the book and everything you need to cure is certainly taught in the book. Do you have a yep. favorite? Butcher Packer in uh, Michigan is where we get all our sausage-making supplies, all our curing salts. So it's butcherpacker.com. Butcherpacker.com. Thank you. Yeah, That's, that's a great, great resource. You heard it, it here <laughs> from Michael Ruhlman. The recipe that we shared of yours on the website is for a salami cotto. Cotto means cooked in Italian, right? And yeah. you use a smoker for just a, a little bit of subtle hot smoke to take the salami to its final, fabulous, delicious place. And like you say in the recipe, it's most like salami you'll find uh, in your gourmet grocery store, but so much better. Can you talk us through it, starting with the, the lean, bound, uh, lean beef shoulder, rather? It's all one thing. It's, mm -hmm. And this special recipe it is really delicious, and it's a great one to do at home, and it's easier because it's cooked. But, you know, basically you, you want the right amount of meat, the right amount of fat. Fat's very important and not to be feared. And you want the right amount of salt. The whole book is devoted to different ways of manipulating, the, manipulating these various, um, you know, the ratios between these various things. Right, the combinations. And mm -hmm. how, how long does the process take, Michael? It shouldn't take more than three months to dry a salami or a copa. It can take as long as a year, or people can leave a ham hanging for, you know, two and a half years. So it it can take as long as you want or or as short as you want and and if you do a cooked product you can you know have it have it that day have it right away two and a half yeah. years that's what they call very good prosciutto you know that <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what that is it's interesting to me in the salami recipe that you provided Michael you use ice water and I've always been a great advocate of ice water when it comes to raw ground meat like for meatballs for instance I think that you get a much juicier meatball using cold liquid uh, when you're binding everything together and you specify that as well is that a standard in your sausage making practice it is keeping the meat and fat cold is critical you said you get a juicier product yes it's not literally juicier it just seems juicier because you bound the fat and the meat together right. by not letting it break out you can have the same amount of juiciness in there, but if you let it get warm, it separates from the, it actually is sort of like an emulsion. It separates, the fat separates from the, 
meat, and you get this dry feeling product. So yes, uh, ice water is critical in any ground meat preparation, even hamburgers. Yeah, definitely so. As we uh, come to the close of summer, we'll fire up the grill and remember your tip. Um, tell us, we know you find great pleasure in writing, and uh, we will cherish our copy of Salumi, but we know there's more on the horizon. What are you working on next, and uh, what are you excited about for fall? For fall, I've got a secret digital product that I'm coming out with. It's a single-subject cookbook, and I, I can't say more than that. Oh, um, you, but... Michael, you're such a tease. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm excited about exploring the digital space and all the opportunities there are for transmitting cooking knowledge via these new devices that we have. So that's what I'm focusing on right now. Fabulous. Well, we'll watch for more great things from the Michael Ruhlman empire. And you should add Salumi, Michael's newest book, The Craft of Italian Dry Curing, to your cookbook collection, an essential. You should know that uh, many of the recipes, in fact, for creating these beautiful dry cured meats are very, very easily done. And for food lovers, there's nothing greater than creating an extraordinary finished product that you made on your own. Their fundamental techniques are shared in the book, again, called Salumi. And I'm going to read the first chapter once again, the introductory chapter all about butchering an entire hog. Michael, I thought that was brilliant nose-to-tail conversation. Thank you so much. It really was. And we hope that you'll join us here back again on the radio soon, and we wish you continued success with all of your passions for food. Uh, Thank you so much, Ben. Fun talking. Hmm. He's such a passionate guy. We love when Michael Ruhlman stops by and we are always feasting on hot topics. We'd love to know about your attempt to make salami at home and you'll find the salami koto recipe posted at chefjamie.com where you'll find more grilling inspiration for this Labor Day weekend. We hope you'll join us next Sunday as well. We're broadcasting live from Bristol Farms in Newport Beach. Come join us. Breakfast is on us. It is the final day of the hatch chili roasting season green hatch chilies from new mexico being roasted live in thousand degree live fire cookers from melissa's produce there's nothing better than a charred skinned roasted hatch chili Mm. soaked in a big huge barrel of tequila baby (laughs) we're gonna be serving it up again and hatch chili cornbread cream cheese oh and everything galore oh you know some of that hatch chili cream cheese and scrambled eggs a couple mornings ago was really good Mm. please join us at bristol farms in newport beach live next sunday beginning at 8 a.m the festivities will go all the way until noon we're going to do some in-store cooking demos and have a big grill out following the show as well so do check out chefjamie.com for more information and you'll find the Melissa's Hatch Chili Roasting dates and times on the Bristol Farms website as well. We're going to be joined by Bison Rancher Ken Childs next Sunday. Uh, The sommelier for the people, Michael Jordan, will be live with us, so bring your wine questions and let us stock your cellar. And we're going to learn from the best, uh, the butcher of Bristol Farms Newport Beach, who ages meat 21 days in his store, Mm. Johnny, is going to join us. We call him Butcher Johnny. He's super cool. Uh, And you're going to love him. And the Orange County Register, 
uh, in the know. We call her the food guru. She's Nancy Luna is going to be present as well. So please come out and join us. And we're going to continue to plan your Rosh Hashanah menu with Judy Bart Kansagor. So this is our last bite, though, for this Labor Day weekend. We love to grill in a foil packet. And so we thought to savor the end of summer, we would share some fun ideas to capture the flavor of foil, uh, of fabulous food, rather, in foil Mm -hmm. on your grill. So all you need to do is fire up the grill, open uh, that box of aluminum foil, pull out a big strip of it. The heavy duty. The heavy duty is the best, right? Right. And how about making scampi in foil? Bring it on, baby. Garlic, shrimp, scampi, half a stick of butter, some chopped parsley, chopped garlic, salt, pepper, the juice of a lemon along with the zest, and a pound of unpeeled large gorgeous shrimp. These are going to be peel and eat, and a big pinch of red pepper flakes, a big foil packet, all sealed up, eight minutes on the grill, and you have the ultimate grilled shrimp scampi it works for mussels too by the way you can actually throw your mussels into a foil packet with that Mm -hmm. same mixture even fennel and cherry tomatoes added in is great too and here's a sweet ending off the grill how about s'mores popcorn oh i love it okay so you're gonna take a couple tablespoons of cocoa powder some confectioner's sugar some crushed graham crackers and some mini marshmallows in a packet on the grill it takes just a few minutes with popcorn fresh or from a bag right throw it all in you've got air popped absolutely yummy s'mores popcorn delicious to live for okay bring it on i'm coming over we're firing up the grill and we hope you do as well i hope to see you on ktla tomorrow morning channel five i'll be up bright and early uh, sharing grilling recipes and inspiration so please do join ali and i on television tomorrow morning channel five i'll meet you there and we hope that you'll of course come out and see us at restaurant rave i will be hosting at the irvine spectrum center this coming wednesday night there's lots of free food and uh, fabulous foodie conversation A very happy Labor Day to you. Please join us next Sunday live. And until then, check out ChefJamie.com. A safe and wonderful weekend. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana signing off. We hope you continue to eat well. The preceding program has been brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment.